Hi, my name is Sharon Shimanova, and this is Chai Podcast. Welcome to season two, Chai Podcast family. I am so excited, so pumped to finally be sharing the first episode of the season. I had the pleasure of starting season two by speaking with Raphael Shimunov, who is a digital and creative strategist. He's worked with a countless amount of grassroots organizations over the past 15 years of his career and is a social justice warrior. He's honestly a Twitter icon, boasting a casual 54 thousand followers and uses his social media presence to spread awareness about powerful and important social movements in addition to satirical and pop culture related content. We talked a bit about his family's migration to the United States, the difficulty he had with fitting in when he was in grade school, and the creation of the Progressive Baharian Facebook group that actually allowed me to connect with him and to many other Baharians with similar sentiments. We also discussed the importance of grassroots organizations, groups, and how projects like Progressive Baharians and Chai Podcast are creating a safe space for resources and conversations to flourish organically, while also serving as a communal space for so many unique and exciting people. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Here we go. I do want to start with saying that I feel like this season, I definitely want to loosen up a little bit. I feel like the first season was a little tighter. It was much more serious. Like I was definitely nervous about like, what are people going to think? What are people going to say? Like, are they going to get me? Just kind of like trying to portray who I am as a person in terms of like the bare foundation. But now that like, I feel like people know who I am. So I'm ready to loosen up and just see where the show goes. I definitely want to talk about things that are more relevant, even in like today's world, Um, aside from just like the larger, obviously macro conversation of Baharian identity because as the point of the show is that like we're all so unique and we have so many different dimensions so although we definitely will talk a lot about Baharian identity on this season I do want to touch on personal things and just issues that are much more relevant in society at large now. Exciting so liberating now that you told the story you have like the flavor of the podcast set people know like the the background and they got a format everyone's like excited everyone I hear talking about it is excited about it and loves every episode I wait for every episode and now you have this freedom to just go deeper yeah I know it's also like kind of in a way it's like yes it is liberating but at the same time I'm definitely a little bit scared like if that makes any sense I'm like (laughs) I feel like I'm kind of mortified in a way like (laughs) yes I'm I'm very I will say that I think ever since I put out season one I feel like I've stood in front of a room of people like fully naked. So at this point, <laughs> at this yeah. point, I can say anything. I feel like I can do anything. Like I, nothing will embarrass me because like I put it all out. Like going to that that really intense dermatologist office, <laughs> and then afterwards, nothing can, nothing will get you down. Like, yeah, exactly. So let's start from bare bones. Let's talk about you. So were you born in the states, or you were born in Uzbekistan? Also, oh, this is where we get into the family history portion. Is there like a intro music for this year? The, the, like, welcome to the family <laughs> history portion of this episode of Chai. 
where we discuss painful memories listeners can relate to, building the trauma bonds we need to continue to unlearn generational cycles of patriarchy while highlighting redeeming aspects of a beautiful culture spun together along the cutthroat but colorful Silk Road trade routes of Central Asia. Could it be like something very pretentious, NPR? That was ridiculous. That was no. awesome. I was thinking that like the, the easiest and simplest way to concisely say all of that is just like oh. and sound the alarm and then just do trigger warning, trigger warning. <laughs> I'm gonna totally overstep all boundaries as a guest now and and do my own intro music. I love that. Do it. Let me, let me figure this out. I'm gonna the because Buharians, we know intros. Yeah. Bar mitzvahs, weddings, smoke machines. The big entrance. Yeah, Even I'm gonna like already said hi I'm to I'm gonna try to capture. <laughs> capture the a Buharian, truly Buharian intro right here. Let's see if it works. Tonight, for the Bar Mitzvah of David Pinkasso, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, as he emerges from the smoke machine and Shadik the train tiger exi exits the stage with Babushka, Uncle Rafik Shimano, who <laughs> should have joined his cousin selling advanced medical diagnostics machines, but is social justice warrior because he is Nastayashi Baran. That's basically the the intro, the Bukharian style. That was beautiful. I don't think I have to say anything else. We can just end no, the episode right here. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, growing up watching wrestling and then seeing like the the those intricate intros like really made made my life. I love those intros. No, that's great. Yeah, that was, yeah, I think if we could sum up any sort of Baharian event, it would be with that song <laughs> for sure. Yes. And, it's on uh, every playlist. <laughs> so yeah, I was born in, um, technically I was born in uh, Dushanbe, where my mom is from, but I'm from Samarkand, so my, where my father is from. So I was raised there. She came out of the valley as they called it there which is hilarious because like my grandfather would describe Dushanbe Valley a Firgana Valley as like where the valley girls are from like and I'm just like wait what like and what are the what are the the characteristics of a Buharian valley girl and and then it's like the LA one it's like very similar and, and he described it yeah and I was like wait what my mom is from that and my dad is from like you know the other side of the tracks, you know, like, <laughs> like the other, the, the whole other um, place where he had like, he was maybe the only person with the college education in like, maybe 30 years in, in his neighborhood, maybe. Um, so it was very uh, much um, between, uh, it was like, I, I think it's on either side of the mount of a mountain range. So Dushanbe born there, that's where they decided to have me for some reason, <laughs> raised in Samarkand. And then we left very early during the exodus <laughs> um, as highest refugees. We left through um, uh, that route through Europe where people really didn't know where they were going. Yeah. I was two years old. My mom was pregnant. My dad, you know, they were <laughs> literally trading rugs and things on their bartering their way out. Um, and, uh, you know, ended up in Rome, Italy, refugee housing for a period. Yeah. So is your family the most like stereotypical Dushamba vibe or oh. is it more like different? Oh, my mom's side, very, very much stereotypically Dushambe vibes. Um, very, 
and I don't know, maybe I'm mischaracterizing different experiences, but like our experience from on the Dushanbe side is, you know, um, really nice schools, <laughs> ballet classes. Uh, her father was like a, even though um, he had the most horrible story growing up as like an orphan and, and all of those, those things, um, he was like this self-made like businessman and was successful there and then successful here when he came, when he joined us. But um, on my father's side, uh, the Samarkand thing was very different too. And also stereotypically like very poverty stricken, you know, uh, the only telephone was in our house in the whole village. And that's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of what made me I think that the theory is like what made Raphael so not insular <laughs> and uh, the theory is that that house ruined me because it was like a hotel it was like it was like a community center everyone came used the phone you know played Nardi had tea had chai and um, and I was just like passed around to complete strangers 24 yeah. <laughs> 7 so that's the the prevailing theory. So you went through Rome so you came to the States when you were about what, like five or earlier? Oh, two, I was like two years old. Like oh, it was we, a quick transition. Yeah, it was there. very quick because um, the refugee housing was being bombed. Mm. Um, there were uh, like people who didn't appreciate what they saw as negative propaganda for against the Soviet Union. Um who, who my dad always said like well why didn't you go back in our in our in our in, right. in our place if you hated it so much from these beautiful uh, roman cafes <laughs> and um uh yeah so from there it was really like um we knew behind the iron curtain that when ashkenazis came and moved to uzbekistan and tajikistan that they knew stuff that we didn't know they came with like knowledge and connections and relationships so often they were like oracles in our, you know, like we were like, oh, what do you, what should we do here? What should we do there? When it related to something European or American. Um, so my dad would basically like in the airports and the bus stations, like ask various people. And there was one very compelling person who was a religious Jew, uh, Orthodox, very Orthodox, Hasidic, um, who my dad had this long, a total stranger or had this long conversation with about our options um, and he laid them out. He was like, one option is Israel, which is what you know you, you, um, you can go to and start life over. Um, another option is New York. Um, and then he mentioned other possibilities, but those are the two main options unless you like Europe and then you could figure out a way there. And, and at that time, I believe the word was, you know, the Italian government was changing every week. So like, I think they were looking for more, something more st stable after fleeing. Um, so they decided, you know, and he, he made this really like cogent case. He was just like, and you know, if you love Israel, it may not even be the answer to go to Israel because you, Israel needs help and you can help Israel from New York sometimes mm -hmm. more than you can from Israel. <laughs> and um, and, and he, he basically really, really pushed New York over Israel and said, like, I don't want to see your children um, in war their whole lives, um, even though, you know, like, I care about people in Israel, he said. Um, um, but New York, I can give you a name. You can stay with this person. Wow. So that was a big thing. So he gave a name of um, a person in Borough Park, Brooklyn. That's where we landed first. Um, yeah. So I was a, I was a little baby. 
That's so beautiful that like this random stranger just literally gave advice to your dad. And that's how you ended up in New York because we're so connected now through like the internet and various other like avenues. I feel like we don't really ever stop and talk to strangers or really feel safe talking to like a stranger in an airport or whatever. And just like that, you can completely get your life like entirely moved into a different direction just from one conversation. Absolutely. Um, And that's a lesson we, I wish we did more like in our communities, like when we reach out, like when we learn one thing, it replicates through the whole community and it helps the whole community, but it's also like sometimes difficult to get out of the bubble yeah, and like see what's happening and, and see what's out there being offered. And, you know, so you were, you landed in Borough Park. Did you guys make the move to Queens ever or did, did you grow up entirely in Brooklyn? So we started in, in this guy's house who was very <laughs> surprised to see us because this random man. there was no Buharians uh, and there wasn't really no like this person has never seen Buharian and and he was expecting another like European Jewish person. And um, when he saw us, we didn't look that, especially my father. And um, they were not really that happy. <laughs> the, the word is I was I was too. I didn't know I was sucking my thumb. But the word is they weren't really too happy about that situation. And immediately we felt like we should find a new place because uh, it wasn't any it wasn't welcoming they they did their best i think uh they just weren't prepared for the different lifestyle like they had yeah. so many like orthodox restrictions which some of which are restrictions matched like as you know with buharian some things right. are very orthodox and some things are not and eventually i think someone gave us the advice about the housing project um being an option and in queens i think we qualified for one right in front of queens college called Pamanak. And that housing project was very, um, as you know, within, I don't know if you know, but um, in New York, the housing projects used to be actually very invested in um, and, uh, you know, like vibrant playgrounds and, and facilities and daycares and all, all of these things. Um, and then as they became browner um, and more immigrant uh, uh, composed, they started to be disinvested in. So we were we were coming off we we came in in that tail end when it kind of stopped being invested in, um, and you kind of had these relics of things that used to be great. Let's switch gears. Fast forward to like teenage years, early twenties. What was that like? Did you have teenage? a lot of Buharian friends? No, like we there was no Buharian community. Like and we didn't move to a Russian community. So like a lot of there. So there was no landing place really like it was just completely we moved into a so in the projects we eventually got out of the projects and my father you know like my understanding of getting out of the projects came from television so my view was we're gonna go we're gonna have this white picket fence house with a golden retriever like full house or whatever and um and then you know we packed our luggage and i'm expecting like oh are we going to go on a plane like this and And we literally like basically walk like i don't know what it was seven blocks over (laughs) the house near the projects and um and we moved there uh in the neighborhood didn't change my school nothing nothing changed except i got it did change me because i got to write you know like it was freeing because you had a yard and nature a little bit more nature and stuff and um um yeah, so then middle school was very probably the roughest time of my life. Um, there was the identity thing where 
of course I didn't like our school was very violent um, and very disinvested. Um, and it's basically, if you wrote a, it's like, a, it was like a really horror movie. If you wrote a, if you wrote a film where you put in, in a room, the kids of, of refugee children from war torn places all over the world, and you just put them in a box somewhere and give them no support at all and give them some of the best teachers who stuck around there, who tried, and also some of the worst teachers that they, they parked there because no one's going to make noise. And um, it was, there were stabbings, there was fights every day. Um, I think I, I can't count how many fist fights I was in <laughs> during that period. Um, and the identity thing was so complex for Buharian because no one knew. And we were so into you know, everyone was calling us Russian. So we just say Russian. And then when you say Russian, they're thinking of the Rocky movie, Russian, yeah. like, you know, I, you know, blue eye, blonde, you know, talking to me like, you come from the cold Siberia? What? Like yeah. what's happening? And it would just, no matter what you say, you sound like you're lying or just some kind of like, I don't know, fraud because, and you, you couldn't fit anywhere, especially like my name was Raphael. So, so Spanish, like, like in Queens, we would say Spanish, you know, people yeah, don't yeah. say Spanish anymore, except yeah. in Queens. <laughs> but like Latino, Latinx, like everything is like Hispanic, all of these, but we just say Spanish and like Spanish kids would just come and be like, Rafael, what's up? How you doing? And um, I'll be like, oh yeah. And we would hang out. Everything would be great. And they'll be like, what kind of name is Shimanov? Oh, you're not Spanish. Why is your name Spanish? <laughs> Are you ashamed of being Spanish? Like, why aren't you speaking Spanish? I'll be like, yeah. I don't know. Like, what's your mother's name? I'll be like, Margarita. <laughs> what's your father's name? Ephraim. <laughs> They're like, you are Spanish and you're lying to us. Why are you ashamed of being Spanish? <laughs> and then um, uh, like, it just became like, I would be confused for Afghan. I would be confused for Iranian Greek, <laughs> like all sorts of things. And in, in that system where you have such a traumatic school where half the kids are, you know, refugees from war, half the kids are from the projects, from really a war at home, you know, if you think about how they're treated. Yeah. And then um, union kids, like roughneck electricians union kids from next door, Electchester, like um, the toughest white kids you'll ever meet, you know, <laughs> like, uh, um, and just put them all together. And what happens is it's almost like a jail where everyone splits up into their groups. And so I was going from table to table, like making friends, building bonds, and then somehow it not lasting and moving from one to the next. And then until finding that, that eventual like UN table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like being Baharian is definitely almost like a double-edged sword because we can almost like pass as anything. We can pass as literally anything. And in a way it, it almost conditions us to act almost like a social chameleon when we're in that public school setting, especially as young kids, when really the only thing that we're seeking is acceptance and love and like friendship. Um, and especially when you're in that kind of strange um, like discriminatory almost space where kids just don't even know where to turn. They're just trying to stay safe. Mm -hmm. I can definitely see how 
it's for sure would be like a traumatic experience. I mean, for me, it was definitely different um, growing up in a school where everyone was primarily like blonde and blue eyed. Um, so it was less so like, what are you? And more so like, I know you're not one of us. Um, so it wasn't like, there wasn't really a UN table for me to like cling to or be like, oh, like I'm going to sit with the different kids. It was kind of just like, yeah, I'm different. And I'll just keep sitting at this table because there's nothing really, there's no other option really. Wow. wow. That's intense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was hard to like my uncle when he came, uh, some of my family went to Israel after later, and then they came here after Israel. And um, my own, my own, one of my uncles, I shouldn't say his name, but like, he, he, he had to, he went to a, a high school, he was older, and he went to a very rough high school where it was also disinvested. And, and um, he, he went by the name, he had a very Jewish name, a very Hebrew name. And then he went by the name of like, you know, a very Americanized name. And then he, yeah. he bought the, he got, he got messed up a few times when he wore the star of David. So then he wore an Italian horn, like, oh my you, God. you know, so, and then he eventually like embraced that identity, which was like um, adjacent to like, you could be Bukharian and you could still look like the guy with the gel backed hair, yeah. <laughs> quasi Italian or Mediterranean, driving an IROC Z. You know, he was like the coolest person in my life. Like I looked up to him. Like you know, girls liked him, and he was very handsome and um, and like uh, like this young man, like uh, um, to emulate. But um, but I saw him like having to really do the chameleon thing. And that's also true for Jews beyond Bukharian and beyond like uh, Mizrahi and Sephardi. It's like the, this outside forces kind of make you into, to push you into these different identities. And then you're attacked for assuming different identities. Exactly. Right? So it's just like the structural thing. And then it's like this, it's one of the most vivid, easy to understand examples of like, how anti-Semitism works uh, around the world. The first big thing that happened that made me question everything was this grade school teacher, fifth grade, Mr. DeMeo, Italian guy, lovable, very lovable, great teacher, socially very liberal, like surprisingly, you would think he's not. He's like super macho guy. Yeah. His hands are the size of like my head, <laughs> you know, like very dashing and charismatic and, and takes no bullshit from anyone, not even the principal. Um, he was really cool, uh, except having someone so cool and liberal himself not understand my story or even anything like he also was traumatized. So the first day of school, I, he, he brings me up and he says, welcome to the student Rafael Shimonov. He's from Russia. And, and everyone just like, and I'm just like, what? I've been here for how many years? <laughs> and people are like, well, did you just get off the plane from Russia? Like, and then he was like, I would like you all to do an exercise. And he would say, everyone go under your desks. And then I'm like, oh, what is this weird thing? And then I go under my desk. He's like, no, not you, Shimonov. Always use my last name. And would always emphasize the OV. And um, no, you stand in the front. And everyone goes under the desk. And she said, he says, this is how I spent my childhood because of the Russians. Whenever we heard that there was a nuclear alert, that we were going to be bombed, that we were going to be killed. And I immediately that day, I had this immediate crush on this 
girl in, in, in the class and I'm like oh I want I wish I could talk to her I wish I could talk to her and she was like giving me eyes back and like this cute like grade school crush thing going on and immediately I like I look at her as the gauge of like how this is going and she's like going from this smiley like almost you know childlike flirty thing to like intense grotesque like just grossed out by who 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 is this enemy that walked into this classroom and and he would go and he would be like and then he would like take his big hands and he would hit the table and be like boom 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 there was nowhere you could run there was nowhere we could do and and blah blah blah. and now he's here and like completely missing the story of like oh no we fled those that group (laughs) like (laughs) like what are you talking about i'm so shocked right now this is insane Oh, it gets worse, even especially like the black students, like what he like what he did. Um, he was somehow able to encompass like being a liberal person and also be like whack shit, like completely racist. And so out of touch. The neighborhood we moved into from the projects was formerly Italian and he's from that neighborhood and it was transitioning very fast. The, the Italians were not all of them. Like we had great neighbors who embraced the change. Um, even older ones were really cool. And a lot of surprisingly, the younger ones were really upset. Like they bought this house, they want this Italian neighborhood, and now it's not. Now the the people from the projects are moving in. And um, so there was a lot of like uh, resentment, and maybe that was part of what was at play there too with him, but I'm not sure. After high school, then did you know exactly what you wanted to do did you know that you wanted to go into government you know that you wanted to go into like grassroots organizations or any of that yeah i thought i just wanted to make money i had no politics even though i grew up in a place where i should have felt it because across the street from our projects is the union housing electchester electricians union housing it's called electchester it's a really nice community um and it it's like this what's beautiful what's poetic about it it's the same housing as the projects except it's like cut down the middle and it's funded by the union dues Mm. and investments and people thrive there. And there were many people were like white or, you know, Ashkenazi and uh, Irish and Italian and all of these things. And um, it it was sort of like a example of like what public housing was across the street. And half my friends were from there, the roughneck white kids, like, you know, um, who, you know, we would shovel snow, we would make money. It was like, if you think of kids from Boston, like, you know, mm. like the entrepreneurial, hardworking. Very like thing. Matt Damon. Yeah, very Matt Damon, like screw, you know, I, you know, it's, it, they're also hilarious. And um, so seeing that should have gave me some kind of like big question mark, but it didn't. Like, uh, I think we, I was so insulated from politics um, and I was indoctrinated at some point in high school by, um a more right-wing English teacher um, who really was my champion because he pulled me from the regular classes and was like, put Rafael in honors. Uh, He's not doing good in Spanish. Put him in advanced Latin. And like, he believed in me. And so I had a lot of trust in him and he helped me flourish. But then he used that trust to like bring like very right-wing material to me. And he almost like knew exactly how, like I was a creative, I was an artist. So he would like and his former Soviet, so he would be like, oh, Ayn Rand. And he would like give me Ayn Rand after school, like found it, like all of these books and things and artsy right-wing stuff. And like, really like, and it was successful. I was very much, um, very much being like becoming a neoconservative at that time, what we called it. And, um, uh, and it was, you know, 
And that's how I started where I was like, oh, okay, I have to just, I have to start a business. I have to listen to my parents and this and that and, and do X, Y, Z. And um, at some point I just started messing around. Like my dad, <laughs> he was like, I'm going to get you a computer so you can do Bill Gates. <laughs> You know, and I'm just like, okay, that's all you need. You just need a computer. Yeah, you need early access, and I, it was true. Like I got early access to a computer more than my peers. I had my first computer, and instead of becoming Bill Gates, you know, I I turned it into something useful. In my school, people were like, "How do we get porn? How do we get <laughs> how do we get essays? How do we get Cliff Notes for free? How do we get books for free? Like help us!" And like they would just give me five dollars. I would go home and put it on a, on a bunch of discs. <laughs> whatever they wanted. Like I really got to know a lot of people. It's actually hilarious. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was like a lot of discuss like, you know, oh, I need that video game. What is it called? Leisure Suit Larry. And it's like <laughs> this perverted video game where just like this horrible man is is going through the game game trying to get laid and it's like 25 this and my dad's like looking I'm like copying these softwares like anarchist like an anarchist and like and then he's like opening the door and he's like nodding his head with pride. At like, yeah, like he's Bill Gates. It's Bill yeah, Gates. I'm Bill Gates. I'm on my way to being Bill Gates. <laughs> he was so proud of you. You were just, you were like pirating internet, just pirating documents. And yeah, you just had no like, idea. Yeah, there was this guy, Jamal, who was just like, Rafael, I don't feel safe telling other people this, but, and he wrote down his like porn preference of what he wants like pictures of it was just photographs really then and you know you would wait for them to load <laughs> and like I had to go and like he was my friend and I just went and I like found his specific preference <laughs> like okay like motorcycle jacket okay and you know <laughs> so that actually did kind of pay off a little bit because I got in involved with technology and digital things and at some point started making like fan pages for like the two realms of my uh, people say it's because of the Gemini in me, but it's like on the, like it was a, a web page for the cure, a fan page for the cure, the band. And then another like general, like hip hop fan page. And uh, which was like two, two rivaling forces in my culture growing up. And then um, some ad agencies began to notice and contacted me and were like, Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And then I started doing like little projects you know, uh, for, for people, uh, until I got an offer to do, um, to like work like full time. <laughs> this is already like early college. And, um, and I, ex- I started accepting them and doing college while doing this job. And, um, yeah. And then there's a bunch of weird stories there, but that's where I actually like found, um, my, like where I could be like do something that's rare and valuable, get paid for it. Um, and I became a total dick because of it. Cause it was like the dot-com boom, it was Silicon Valley alley in New York. And we would, would literally every stereotype of like dot-com boom, like bowling alley inside the office, like all of these like, you know, fancy things and people and stuff. I was just like thrown into there um, just making money, working for anyone doing terrible things for ad agencies <laughs> like the things that I learned that they do is just wild like I would make yeah, I would be told to make a girl like acne like give her acne on a page oh for, for an ad so to do before and after and I would sit and um and they would knock me on my shoulder and be like oh no no you too many pimples only, only <laughs> put three pimples on her 
And I'm just like, that's it? Like, she's, it's, it looks, she looks fine with that. And they're like, yes, yes, you don't get it. Like, and I, what I slowly learned was the whole point of ad agencies is, especially with young women, was to make them feel bad that they even aren't the before picture. You know what I mean? Like, it's like this sub, it's like this psychological warfare yeah. to make you feel like you need to buy your way out of something. And I was part of this gross thing without being aware of it until later on, like it slowly began to develop. And, and I had this like slow change of course, mostly through the work of like other people, other groups that I joined to help, like, you know, it started with like cheesy things like, oh, we're doing pro bono, like rainforest website or the rainforest foundation or this or that. And then I eventually started understanding like, whoa, there's like grassroots organizations that do X, Y, Z that exist. Like what? People get paid for that. And slowly my life started going towards that. Like I even had um, family members, especially in terms of women and girls, admit to me, like, like when, I, when I had my daughter, I learned a lot about people there when they gave me their unsolicited advice. And it was that I wasn't doing my job. And they said this. Specific. And these are people I love and they're good people. And they basically said, you're raising a girl without shame. Mm. She has no shame. And I'm like, what do you mean? No shame. Do you mean just like she's shameless? Like, you know, no, no, she's like too, she's not worried about like being seen. And I'm just like, what do you mean? (laughs) And basically what they were basically saying, like that it's better for a girl to be ashamed of her body than it is for her to be ambivalent or proud of it. Um, So for my daughter, that was impossible because she was like very active and showing me her muscles all the time and showing me like every little definition. (laughs) Like she was like a Taekwondo like champion and stuff. Like she really went at it physically and was very proud of like what she was, you know, like her physicalness and that was like a red flag for people in my family. Like, oh no, this is going to be trouble. Yeah, I think it's even, it's, it, it, it's definitely bigger than that even. I think it's more of, you want to be ashamed of everything. Like even having a presence in the room, even demanding attention in a room. You want to almost be like a wallflower, like there, but not there. And mm-hmm. almost embody this like invisible nature and I think that I definitely, my parents had a, a whole lot of those kind of comments for me, especially growing up. Um, it reminds me a little bit also of like the complexity of it, because I would say my grandfather, who was a very powerful force in my upbringing because of his personality, just wild. And, you know, he's not known as like a known feminist, right, at all. But I do remember one day he, in front of someone who was kind of, so our house became the anchor anchor family house right like we would just host all the people coming in after we we got a house and um and he would also be an observer to that but he was also very opinionated and i remember once there was this moment where uh, one girl in my family was being called immodest mm. and he paused the the mother or the aunt i don't remember who said it but um he paused her and said because she was like trying to reel her in in terms of her body image and he paused her and he says you know i know in our in our family we like to have bonsai trees you know beautiful bonsai tree you control every you cut every twig 
and you control it. And, and who, who, who can agree, who can disagree that the bonsai tree is so beautiful? But what if I told you and you were holding a beautiful bonsai tree that it was supposed to be an oak tree? Would you feel that it's beautiful or would you cry? And like she started crying. She was like, oh your God, daughter, your daughter is an oak tree and you're 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 making her a bonsai tree because that's all you know that's beautiful. And um, that stuck with me. I never heard that was <laughs> my my sexist grandfather was like the first <laughs> feminist theory teacher. <laughs> in, in that case. That's insane. Honestly. I, I wish somebody said that to me to like a parent or anyone in my presence. That's beautiful. Even just like the, the, the metaphor just speaks volumes. Yeah, I think he just finished Karate Kid, the original. <laughs> that was probably where it's been. Let's turn over. Um, let's talk about um, Progressive Buharians and how that came about. Paint me the picture. Mm. Oh, Progressive Buharian. So I actually had this myth in my head for some reason because the, I there was this very popular, there is this very popular anti-Trump Soviet immigrants group on Facebook, which is started by my friend Olga, Olga Tomshin. And she's amazing. And that group started because of Trump. Uh, just being incredulous about like, why are so many people in our community falling for this con man? And it became this huge, like thousands and thousands of user kind of group. It really was helpful to me when I was like, just like seeing other Russians or former Soviets or Russian speakers, so many different types of people there um, going around and having this community there. And in my head, I was like, I must have created, I must have started the progressive boring groups after that. And then I actually looked the other, like uh, some months ago, maybe a year ago, when we updated our group stuff to write its bio. And we created it the summer before Trump was elected. So I don't really know if there was like an like an event other than like how shocked I was at how many Buharians were talking about Trump before. Uh, and knowing that it didn't really matter in terms of elections, because in New York, there's no way someone like Trump is going <laughs> to get yeah. votes, even as even if every Buharian voted for Trump, like he would still lose in New York. But it was just so offensive to me. Um, seeing how we so easily, our community so easily circled him. And I was, I just became very curious. I'm like, well, I didn't know Buharians are political. And this group has shown that there is a politics <laughs> emerging, not the right one. And I, I'll say that without any apology, <laughs> not the right one, right? I wonder what it would look like if it was progressive Buharian. Like, I wonder how many people would just like, because that's what I searched for. And I searched for it and I didn't find it. And even before the anti-Trump thing. So I was just like, where are they? Who are they? You know, I know maybe a, a cousin, one maybe cousin who I would say, if I talk about Bernie, he's like, oh, yeah, it's so sad. <laughs> like, we, we could have had the real one. <laughs> like, maybe one cousin out of, I have so many, I have like over 80 cousins. <laughs> and um. And then others and somewhere in the middle with Hillary and, and that, but like overwhelmingly, even the young people are pro-Trump. And um, so, yeah, I just created it, put it out there. And it was just like a couple of us. We had, it was only, it was laughably only three of us for a while, for the longest time. And we had a, our header image was three unicorns uh, <laughs> because it just, there was no one else. 
um, and eventually Raquel Tillo joined. Um, and she really, she really, if you want to like give credit to like someone who worked the hardest to grow it. And ever since she really put her head to it, it grew. Um, and it's not like a huge giant group. It's cause it's like, so we're so protective, I think of the space. So it's very, very small. It's like under 200 people right now. Um, since since 2016, <laughs> and then Ruben Shimanov was integral, like as our like oracle of knowledge and history, and other people came with like their skills and like like Bukhari language, poetry, and uh, and others like people Bukharians who I never would have thought would existed like out there, like someone who's like running for office in Long Island to, to legalize weed in 2016, which was unheard of in 2016 in almost any community in Long Island. So like uh, there's just, it's just this incredible group of people who found each other, who share with each other um, at the most base level, like the easy passive level, I know people who know it exists, never signed up, but tell me they're happy that it exists. And like, like always ask me questions about it. Others sign up and they're like watching and reading and listening and maybe not comfortable yet to share. And uh, a lot of like a smaller portion actually engaging a lot. And then there's this hope that we haven't achieved yet. And I hope we do one day. And that is to turn it into some kind of power to turn it into, you know, when, you know, when we have tragedies in our community, we had COVID, um, we have, we had suicides, we had drug tragedies, we had a lot of, you know, uh, domestic abuse tragedies, things like that, where our official voice as Buharians is going to be the rabbi who's closest to the person who was involved. And sometimes their advice is great. And other times it's completely backwards um, and is not representative. If you ask regular Buharians of their feelings on something, it's not, you know, even my great grandmother would disagree with some of the things they promoted. And to me, if this group can grow and emerge and, and find um, a cause to be this other voice, um, when things like that occur, that we can be like, hey, have you heard about therapy? <laughs> have you heard about um, this service? Have you heard about, you know, um, mediation for this problem? You know, um, yeah, maybe you should give her the get because X, Y, Z, you know, um, so, and then even bigger, like when, you know, David Aronoff, who ran for office, uh, for, like the first Buharian ever to really run for office like that. Remarkably, he's like made a life for himself where he's in service to the Buharian community and connecting people to like services and things that they didn't know existed for them and empowering them, making sure that they get on the census so that there's funding for Buharians, that things are in Russian, things are in things. And he and I don't agree almost, you know, like maybe... I don't know, maybe we agree on like 70% of politics, but I 100% like support like how he's like become a lifeline to that thing to the outside. So, and I think this group has a similar potential. Like, 
Yeah, of almost serving as like a base camp for people yeah. to reference and for people to seek help or resources of yeah. any kind, really. And I feel like that's really what it did for me. I mean, when I found progressive Baharians two years ago, I was about to deactivate my Facebook because I was like, fuck Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I was, it was a complete accident. I was just talking to a friend of mine and she was like, oh, I feel like you'd really like this Facebook group. Like, have you heard of it? Are you a part of it? And I, and it was kind of during that time when I was bubbling over and like thinking about chai and like really getting through the nitty gritty stuff. And like, I was so excited about it, but at the same time, there was that sense of imposter syndrome and that sense of like, am I being too opinionated or will this be digested the right way? And by finding progressive Baharians, as soon as I joined, I was like, holy shit, like this is heaven. It was almost like <laughs> a, a, this strangely like ideal, idyllic like space where wow. nobody is the same. Every person is so unique and every single person there is progressive. Oh, we're at each other's throats sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why it's so great. It's because it's a space that welcomes that, that conversation and the dialogue. And it's, exciting because although we all can agree that we're progressive Baharians, there's a, mm -hmm. a a variant to that and it's a spectrum and it's except we accept like that the way that the moderators and the three of you guys are able to welcome every person immediately and like make them feel safe and make sure that the space is organic and kind um, especially during today's climate and even like the climate over the past like five years has been so intense and being able to kind of go to that Facebook group as a getaway and almost in a way um, to see that like, you're not crazy just because you're the only person at the Shabbat table that has these opinions doesn't mean that you're the only person in the community that does. And this page really did like bring that to light for me because you just brought a hundred, 150 people when I joined and 150 people is a lot. And maybe like when we think about numbers on social media, it's like, oh, it's just 150 people. But when you think of 150 people in a room, yeah. it's a different way of looking at things and it's exciting and fresh and I'm forever grateful for it. Absolutely. I'm, my heart is singing right now. <laughs> like, I'm so happy. I love hearing the stories of, uh, of people finding it because when I was looking, <laughs> it wasn't there. And, uh, um, but uh, it is there now. And um, I just love... It's just I have so much love for everyone in that in the community, even if we argue and at each other's like whatever about different issues and stuff like that. Um, and also, like, I'm just like learning. Um, I feel like the hardest part for me was there was um, to remind myself that I was older, I think, than a lot of the people joining and. I was in this uh, habit of protecting it for a long time from people joining and um, and then using it as a tool to like make people go right. <laughs> um, that I, I, I it became a reflex of mine, and then like I started seeing. I think I think it was like I got feedback from others or in the middle of it where I realized. Oh, wait, wait, I'm, I'm emulating what people ran away from. Like there was this thing where I was like, well, you shouldn't say this or you shouldn't say that or blah, 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 da, 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 da. There was a certain amount of control, like the bonsai tree again, 
Like there was a certain amount of thing. I was like, oh, I'm going to craft this, this group. It's going to look like this. It's going to be this. Where the more I step away from it and the more people just go at it and then we deal with how to make it less harmful and learn from that, the better it got. You know, I have some experience in that. Like, for example, at my work is like, I used to, at the time I was at the Working Families Party, which is like this third party, but it's a third party that's not like a spoiler. It's like, it tries to like make the Democrats better like by, by forcing them to, to, to be more progressive. So a lot of the times in, in that situation, we also learn like, oh, we're, we're, these are people traumatized from the Democratic Party coming here. Anything I do that's going to trigger XYZ is going to really f- mess them up. So like when, when people were coming here vulnerable and also happy and elated that this thing exists, the last thing, like the, the first thing, the, the most valuable thing I learned in the beginning of it is, and even the middle of it, and even today, is like um, not, to, not to crowd it as an older guy, as an older male, Buharian, um, and also as someone who people are going to be cautious about because of like the situations I've been in in the past that's, that is not very Buharian-esque to them. You know, like, you know, the debate around Israel or the debate around socialism or, or, or Bernie or things like that. And I felt like I shouldn't be, it should be its own thing. And I'm trying to make sure that it's not associated with me as much so as it could continue to be that open door for as many people. And I'm just like, I want to just be a member with you, with everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, that's like a thing I'm trying to figure out it's important to not like hover over it and be like a, like a helicopter parent almost to this like baby of yours. But at the same time, you don't want to like completely let shit run wild and let anybody in and just have the space like completely crumble from the inside, because there are other Facebook groups that are a lot more populated and have a lot more numbers you can say, but it's just not as unique or real as progressive Baharians, which like for me, I think was really valuable because I didn't want the diluted or like the, like one dimensional and like just very clear cut because it's not really what politics is about. It's, it's a lot, there's a lot of things going on and there are a lot of people with different opinions and the page is able to cover all of those bases. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope so too. And it's also a challenge for people when they join, because when Buharians join things, we're we're immediately by our family and social circles um, associated with that. So that means if you join something where people believe X, Y, where some people believe X, Y, Z and other people believe X, Y, Z, therefore you believe those things versus, no, I joined a place where we have, where we have many different opinions and different types of people, but we're all agree that society should bend towards helping each other versus the notion of, this wild west, like romanticized, uh, like Reagan-esque thing that Reagan, our hero who saved us from the Soviet Union, like yeah. that, that like rugged individualism that's really code word for just cruelty to each other and this competition of like, like this Darwinian crazy hunger games kind of worldview. Um, that's what we all oppose there. And we have this disagreements and challenges and whatever about tactics and philosophies and 
all those things, but we all like, there's no one there, even the people who maybe weren't a right fit and then started their own group that was a little more center or right. Um, I still agree. I still believe that they want a society that's different than what uh, traditionally, like we've been taught to, to want. Yeah. Have you, I know that like almost, I feel like majority of the time people it's just easier for people to like digest things when they look at them as a binary or when they look at them as a dichotomy. And I feel like when it came to progressive Baharians, when I actually started reading the content and being a part of it and like posting and responding to things, I realized very quickly that this was almost like considered by a lot of people as like the complete opposite of BTP. And it was created to be this like villainous thing versus BTP is this all-inclusive and like in loving and encompassing like uh-huh. you know like ideal that like all the Baharians just love it whereas like progressive Baharians is this like villain yeah just- there's some people who vilify it in a way like I get messages sometimes from young people who dm me and tell me that their parents told me that I should never that they should never read anything by me or listen to anything by me and that I'm out to to destroy Buharian community or something like that. I'm just like, that's so laughable. Like there's a lot of Buharians who just left being Buharian because of various various reasons. Not not, not sometimes because of anger t- towards things, but other times just because they're indifferent about the culture. And then there's like Jewish programs who are like spending countless amount of money to get people to be interested in their Jewish roots again to like maintain continuity um, in the culture, which I'm, I actually support it so much. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're doing it. It is a act of love. And I, I, you can't live life being anti anything really. You have to always, even the people who are vehemently anti something because it's important to be anti-fascist, for example, you can't build a society being anti-fascist. You have to build it being pro-something. So there is so much beauty and so much things that I adore about our culture that I want to make sure that I did whatever I could in a small way to and 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 others and and help others do in a small way and big ways, like to pres- preserve it. And so at the same time as we, they, everyone would donate to a, to a fund that. Pr- pr- promotes the longevity of our of our culture oftentimes among those people will be people will be like oh this is the enemy <laughs> versus like oh we're already doing it without any money so like we're doing it just from our free time or, you know we're instead of going out and hanging out with our friends we're like making gifts and shit you know like come on <laughs> like we're like we're really we're the diehard people that you want to help you to make this possible so you know, agree or disagree with politics. And I'm not the one of those people that say it's just politics. Politics, you can't just say that. That's bullshit. Politics is everything that affects all of us. So it's important. What I'm saying is we can disagree on your worldview and we still agree that it's good for Buharians. You should be encouraging Buharians to practice being Buharian um, if you care about Buharian. And so far, I've done that, and a lot of the critics of it who would take a cynical view of what we're doing haven't done that themselves. You know, if, if they're out there running a museum 
<laughs> like, and like doing a, sh- a cooking show about Buharian food and a cookbook. Great. Fine. You're doing it. But most of the people are not. They're just doing nothing, letting things disappear and pointing to anyone they disagree with how they're doing it, um, you know, to do it. And also it's important not just to preserve it. It's also important to evolve. Things that don't change don't survive. Uh, and now we're at this, it's not just Buharians, it's everyone all over the world is at each other's throats with their own family at this critical point where there's a fork and we're really deciding, like, do we believe in democracy or not? And in, in places like the United States, we never really practiced democracy because there was always a majority that was white and Christian. Um, so it was never really practiced, the democracy, because there was always a majority that was safe. So no matter what, um, they you got their way. So it's not really a democracy because the minority hasn't exercised their will. So now it's funny because the same year Trump became popular was the year that if you add it up, the statisticians found that that year is the year when 51% of Americans that vote are black, brown, uh, I think, or progressive, right? That was the year. And that's the year that's the first year, I believe, that American democracy was tested because that's the first year where people, you might not get your way. The dominant culture might not get your way because of democracy. So now let's see if you really believe in this democracy you've been cosplaying for 200 years. Yeah, I think that that, I mean, it's a lot of, it's a lot to unpack. You've said, you've said, I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, no, I love it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people lose sight of what is important and what like we're all just trying to do, which is to better the community and better just like the society that we're growing in for future generations um, to not have to go through the same struggles or the same tribulations because, you know, like it wasn't fun for us. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting in the way that I think over the past decade, but more specifically over the past five years, it's been like, we're really teetering on that edge where like, I don't know if I'm going to wake up and like, you know, like you never know if the next day you're going to wake up and there's going to be like a full, full fledged, like revolution outside, because it almost feels like we're getting to that point. And it's interesting when we look at history, because history is so dialectic in nature, where like the same thing just eventually happens. And I think now, especially where all of the whole world is even like up in arms and ready to fight at any disagreement or any issue. Um, And in a way it is frightening, but also it's liberating because it's nice that people um, are starting to form their opinions and starting to formulate like what they believe in. But on the flip side of that, there's always the people that have opinions where they think they are like rooted in something that's real or accurate when in reality, it's just false. And that's where the fear comes in because you have people that are coming up in arms, ready to fight for what they truly passionately feel versus the people that are just up in arms because they want to get in a fight. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's difficult. And it's, it's interesting how I feel like that, that reflects in multiple ways, like on a larger scale, but also more like 
on a lar on the larger scale, but also on the grassroots scale. It's happening in every small community and in every little town, um, but it's also happening on a world scale as well. Yeah. Um, it makes me wonder about like, so like the Jewish story and the Bukharian story and every minority story around the world throughout history, when things became challenging like this, either around resources, ideology, or whatever, um, the, you would see factions uh, among the people who are most vulnerable. And Buharians have lived thousands of years in a vulnerable state that was on the whims of other people's moods, um, where it could be decent, and you know, and you're taxed <laughs> for for not being X Y Z or whatever, and then it could be terrible. Um, and a lot of the time, minority groups will side with power. Like in when the U.S. invaded Vietnam, there was you know, like there was people who sided with who were going to side with the winner, and there was people, you know, in Jewish stories all over the world throughout oppression, there was those who sided power, and I think that's what happened with Trump and what happened now, there are people who are genuinely like, you know, I know it's controversial, like the epigenetics and all of those things, but like genuinely, like we're, we've developed, we've survived here because there were people like both of us. We survived here because there was people who believed in sharing and like a collective good. And we're also here because there were people who were reactionary and were very, very sensitive to danger and fear and, 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 and side with power versus like the resistance or this or that. We're here alive because of both those groups. So in one way, um, it's, it just builds into the struggle of like, you know, losing what you don't need and how much faith we have in democracy. You have, you have to have a hell of a lot of faith in democracy working and people to agree with things that are written on a piece of paper when for thousands of years you're, you're here because you, you didn't believe that. <laughs> Those or that the paper was written thousands of years. <laughs> like the paper was literally written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting for sure. Definitely exhausting. But I think if... I think what I've learned is like looking at the big picture is so detrimental because when you look at like the broad lens, you're so mortified and it feels like it could never get better and it'll never change. But that's why for me personally, I cling to like the little things and the ways that I can actually help. And Chai is my way of doing that. Um, and if I think I strongly believe that if every person had the privilege to work on what they were passionate about and what they cared about, that like the world would just be yeah. such a better place. I mean, touching on both those points, like I was thinking like what I said previously about like fear and reflexes and things and hope and all those things being this recipe for why we're here and like democracy being a, still a project. And this is something that I've been thinking about lately on a broader way that <laughs> someone who's made his life working in elections and um, progressive campaigns and stuff like that, who maybe now 20 or 20% 20 of my mind is taken by like, okay, if, what if this doesn't work? Like, what should we be building 
And I feel like we have in our tradition, we don't call it mutual aid, but that's in our tradition. And it's so deeply ingrained in our tradition. And like, it actually makes, it kind of makes us resilient to whatever's coming if we build it now while we can. And podcasts like this, Chai, um, you know, I've, I've listened to podcasts during the Iraq war that they were just started to, these Iraqis started these podcasts just to like shoot the shit. And they became the hub for information for people and countless people survive things and stuff like that. Like, so for me, uh, we have to practice this mutual aid after these storms uh, for Buharians and for our, like everyone else in our communities and like create these pathways. Um, and the worst that can happen is, okay, democracy works and we have all these amazing friendships and groups together that can work and do stuff together, especially as climate change comes. And at worst, democracy doesn't work. And these groups is what made us survive and our, what our great grandparents did when, you know, when kosher food was illegal and, you know, uh, bar mitzvahs were outlawed and, you know, literally you could die for beliefs and all those kind of things, like what they taught us and uh, what we did as Buharians. Really, the big thing wasn't the fear or the hope. It was the... Um, it was a mutual aid. And I think that comes in the face, in the, in the shape of information and humor and recipes and groups and things. Um, but we have to build those pathways and we have to have all these uncomfortable conversations and we have to throw nobody out. There's this funny thing, but my dad, there's this lesson, the architectural lesson that my dad once told me that stuck with me was his student project in college was this weird map he showed me and it, it was like a campus he designed and it was no roads and like no walkways. And I was like, what, how did everyone get around? He's like, Oh no, no, the whole design is you build a campus and you don't pave the walkways and you let people organically tread on the grass and you're going to see where the most efficient natural walkways are. And then you pave over those. And, um, so that's like the spirit, like to me, that was beautiful. And to see the after drawing, of the concept and it was like this beautiful winding pass that an engineer couldn't think of but people do just out of use um and it's just like so I, I kind of think of things that way like um like just do stuff together and these walk these pathways will be built and trust me we're going to use them yeah i think that it 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 always gets proven time and time again that the the tighter organizations, the, the groups that are really there because every single person that is in that room or that is in that Facebook group believes and like vehemently is passionate about this. And then when disaster strikes or when there's a problem, you are confident that those people are going to get up and, and do the work. Yeah. And we trust each other. Yeah. Right? We know um, we know we can trust each other. There's a group like I'm on the board of, I was a member for a long time called JFRED, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And we only really operate in New York, mostly New York City. And it's political, but it's also social. And it was the first place really that I noticed that I was like, oh, it didn't have any Buharians at all. And, and barely even Mizrahi people didn't really exist in there until more recently. And um, And now it's home to like all sorts of Jews of color and Mizrahi people and black Jews and like all sorts of like, 
every Jew you can imagine is like part of this uh, beautiful community and they're just doing things. So if it's like people need masks, masks are being like, you know, there's groups, there's anti-Semitic attack. Okay, let's do a, a community training and like, and and teach people about like anti-Semitism and uh, with, but in solidarity, in solidarity with every group, every other grassroots group of every faith and denomination. Um, groups like that, uh, you create like a family uh, that, and then because of our lives, they're so in and out in terms of capacity. Like my dad, you know, had, was sick, had a stroke. I was out of everything for a while. The fact that there's an a grassroots organization there holding it up for me to come back to is important. Um, and so I just like urge everyone like, join these grassroots groups no matter like whatever your interest is like food co-op um you know masks you know uh, you know emergency whatever join something and and create and you're going to be the buharian in there (laughs) and then then i want to hear your whole the whole thing like i want to see buharians doing all these things everywhere yeah and that's really the goal is to just like spread awareness um, and just stop hiding in the shadows, really. Um, and I feel like that's what I'm trying to do here is kind of create a safe space and create that family. That's something that I was really passionate about um, when I was starting it. And it was really important for me to like make that clear that this is a safe space for people that don't feel safe in many other places. Um, and of course, like over the past year, I've definitely gotten a lot of negativity and I've definitely gotten a lot of um negative messages um and like conversations with people that disagree with what I'm doing but at the end of the day I feel like it all starts with grassroots things and like if a group of people believes in something then like it can it has the potential to grow whereas if you're just kind of like clicking follow or clicking like when and you're just like one in like two million people it's not as organic it's not as real for me at least yeah no risk, no reward. Exactly. I definitely believe in that. And I'm very, I'm very glad that I was able to, um, I'm able to like slowly but surely build a family here. And I'm honored and like very excited that you are um, one of those family members, because I think that what you bring to the table is definitely um, impressive and very important in multiple ways. I so appreciate that. I feel the same. And the unique thing is that we're probably like we're we're chosen family and we're probably family family <laughs> at some point, which we'll have to figure out with our last names. But uh, but yeah, we it is it is a pleasure like watching so many people um, come on here and really just like I know how hard like every single person I know you're listening right now, thinking about like what would I say when I would say that? but how could I say that without my mom hearing that I said that about X, Y, Z, or my brothers hearing that I said that? Even me, I had to like censor myself. I wouldn't say my uncle's name and this and that. Like, I'm just like, wait, shouldn't I have said his name? Like, it's hard. (laughs) And we're just so used to not airing our laundry in a way. But in reality, we are really like, who's logging in to listen to this? We are. So we're, this is the family table. And this is how we're getting across the table. Um, this is not like airing the laundry. It's, it's now how a family conversation happens. 